Hello everyone and welcome to A Cast of Kings, an unofficial podcast about the HBO original series Game of Thrones. I'm David Chen and I've never read any of the books in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. I'm Joanna Robinson and I've read every book in George R. R. Martin's A Song of Ice and Fire. And that was in no way the eighth take that we've done <laughs> of uh, that intro. If you're just tuning in to A Cast of Kings for the first time, uh, what we do here on the show is we spoil everything through this week's episode of Game of Thrones. Uh, but nothing from future week's episodes, and that includes uh, nothing from the next time on preview that HBO is fond of showing sometimes. So this is kind of a show watchers podcast primarily. This week we're going to be spoiling everything through season three, episode seven. I'm sorry, season four, episode seven of Game of Thrones. And that episode is entitled Mockingbird. Find uh, more of our episodes at GameOfThronesPodcast.com. You can also email us at acastofkings at gmail.com and find us at Facebook and Twitter at a cast of kings so facebook.com slash a cast of kings and on twitter at, at a cast of kings so Jonah robinson a uh, lot of good stuff to dive into in this week's episode and uh, let's just get right into it let's just go right straight into the episode uh so one thing i thought it was worth mentioning actually before we we get into this this week's well i mean it's it has to do with this week's episode is the opening credits we've always loved the opening credits of game of thrones we have because it looks spectacular it sounds spectacular and not only that but it helps to sort of illustrate what's going on in the show by showing you like all the places you're going to go this season jana it's been kind of weird like they, they will show uh things in the opening credits that then don't end up in the in the episode right or uh things will be in the episode that then don't appear in the opening credits i don't know yeah if so noticed. this week we didn't have the eerie in the opening credits, and we did have the Dreadfort. And that's the reverse of what we saw on the show, right? Right. And also, there was a scene in Dragonstone, and that was also not on the map this week, yeah. I think, either. Yeah. Uh, so that's just really weird behavior. Uh, I don't know why. It's kind of confusing, to be honest. It doesn't really bother me, but... Um... <laughs> <laughs> My mind has advanced beyond needing the map, I think is what you're saying? No, no, I just like... I think it was it was fun when it was correlated to every single location. I don't know if maybe they spent a ton of money on the Iron Bank of Bravos thing, and they I mean, need to they, show that you know to use it a couple yeah. times. And um, I don't, you know, I don't really know why. Um, well, there's also another have... consideration, which is that the way the opening credits are structured, I believe, like it's easier to make it longer than usual, and it's more ch- challenging to make it shorter than usual. I'm guessing huh. that I, I don't like. That is a very bad guess. It's probably completely wrong, but uh, just based on my ear, like I've heard them extend the opening credits because you know it's a very repetitive theme song, so right. it's very easy to like add on like more measures to that. Loop in but, a few bars. Yeah, to loop in a few yeah. bars. But like if you take stuff out, it maybe feels more abrupt. I'm not sure because I've never listened to the opening credits in a short fashion like that before. Anyway. And it might also be disorienting. I don't know. Like, I heard that complaint from someone this season that the way they were going around the map was too disorienting. So basically... Right. Because, because earlier on in the show, it was very easy to kind of tell the relationship between the places. I feel like they tried to move from south to north and then east, or does it always end at the wall? I don't know. Anyway, yes, they were doing something different this season. I am just forever grateful for that little... Bravosi introduction because the coin I just I love that it's so like mousetrap <laughs> it's so great <laughs> it's like a Rube Goldberg device yes yes uh, it's also interesting that they keep showing Winterfell which is a place we haven't seen in forever 
right? But, but we I, sort of saw it this episode. Uh, I guess. I mean, it's kind of, it's <laughs> a good one, Jonah. But I guess it's kind of a way to to pay homage to the fact that everything started there, maybe. And keep it in our hearts. Perhaps. And yeah, keep it in the back of your mind. Yeah. Or your heart, whichever one. Those are the similar places. Whichever organ you use to get through the day. <laughs> anyway, past the opening credits, let's get into the show. We start with uh, Jamie and Tyrion. Uh, Jamie is... None too happy with Tyrion. I'm sorry, what am I grateful for? The opportunity to live and die at the wall as punishment for a crime I did not commit? You threw your life away. You threw it away. It's not a joke. You understand that, don't you? Of course it's a joke. Just not a very funny one. I couldn't... I couldn't listen to her. Standing there, telling her lies. I couldn't do it. You fell in love with a whore. Yes. I fell in love with a whore, and I was stupid enough to think that she had fallen in love with me. They they have an argument about, like, kind of what we discussed last week on the show, which is that uh, Tywin was probably playing, you know, Jamie the entire time during that invented scene that Brian Cogman uh, wrote, right? That this arrangement that he had uh, gave Tywin everything he wanted, which is... Jamie is like no longer in the King's Guard, no longer attracting all these terrible rumors. He's continuing on Tywin's line, and they, he never has to deal with Tyrion again. Uh, and so he engineered it so that it was perfect, and Tyrion refused to to um, sort of fall in line. And uh, I thought this was a nice scene between the two of them. And one of my favorite moments in the scene is when like Tyrion starts getting all snarky. And Jamie essentially says, you know, be careful. Like, I'm the only friend you have. I thought that was a nice touch. Yeah. Uh, what did you make of this opening scene between the two of them? I really loved it. Um, I think it really illuminated uh, Tyrion's motivation. Um, it wasn't just losing control. It was losing control, but lashing out with a point, um, which was to destroy, you know, seeing through his father's plan and destroying his father's plan. Right. Um, and then also this idea of... Not just it also answers your other question from last week is do we think that Tywin thinks Tyrion is guilty, right? And right. Tyrion's assessment, which you know, he's smart he's certainly smarter than I am, so I will agree with it, is that Tywin knows he's innocent. So Right. Uh and a lot of questions in email and on the comments about the trial last week. Mm-hmm. Specific elements of the trial, like why is it that Shay betrayed uh, Tyrion. Why is it that Varys betrayed Tyrion? Uh, and I guess the reason we didn't address these questions is because, like, I don't really know. I, I, I think, like, I know. Uh, I'm sorry. I don't know. Joanna might know. Uh, we didn't really want to speculate. We we're hoping that maybe this week they would reveal it, which they didn't. I don't think any of those answers are uh, any of those questions are answered. Uh, they may in future weeks episodes. But uh, we should say, like, a lot of people, like had guesses or were wondering why these betrayals, why this whole like sort of litany of betrayals by these people. And I guess um, my assumption, I don't know if it's correct, is that, for example, in the Shea instance, Tywin might have gone to her and said something like, if you betray Tyrion, he will live. Like, that's the deal. Otherwise, he's dead. You know, and that Shea actually, that, that what we thought was an act of betrayal might have actually been an act of love. That's the... Uh, fiction I created for myself in my head. I have no idea if that's actually the case. But I imagine that that might have been something that Tywin used to his advantage. Is like, help 
out and like help me out, like accomplish this thing. And even though it's terrible, Tyrion will live. So uh, I know you probably can't comment on that, Joanna. Does that sound like a reasonable assessment to you? Um, I- sure. <laughs> what I, what I will say about this is, yeah, sometimes people get upset that we don't talk about certain things on the show. And what I'll say is it's really fun to speculate when, when both people don't know the outcome. Right. So I could talk, we could talk all day long about breaking bad speculations when neither of us knew what was going to happen. Right. But it's a lot less fun to, you know, speculate when one person actually knows the answer. Right. (laughs) So there's, yeah. (laughs) Try doing that sometime. (laughs) It is not very enjoyable. Uh, so anyway, a lot of questions about why, like, why this happened. Why didn't we talk about this? That, there's your answer for you, and there's my speculation. So, did you have a Varys um, theory as well? Uh, why did Varys betray uh, Tyrion? Right. I would so. There's this line he says. We never talked about this last week. This line that that uh, Varys says about how I never forget anything, mm-hmm. and that's Varys's way of communicating to Tyrion that no, I didn't forget that you are the person that saved the city, right? Uh, but it's a, such a weird cadence, right? Like, why would he say it that way? Because, uh, you know, he, he, the way he said it, it wasn't like, um, yeah, I remember that you saved the city, but I still have to do this horrible thing. Like, you know what I mean? It just wasn't, like, it, it wasn't the way I would think that someone would say something like that. Uh, saying, like, I know you're still a good person. Uh, so... I have no spec. That's a long way of saying I have no speculation, Joanna. Okay. Uh, but I'm curious to see how this all ends up. I got this very bad sinking feeling, though, Joanna Robinson, when this scene was over that uh, we weren't going to resolve this trial by combat situation during the course of this episode. You ever get that sinking feeling when you're watching <laughs> something and you're, you're thinking, man, I'm really enjoying this plot line, but I have a feeling it's not going to be resolved in the course of this episode. Uh, I got that sinking feeling and it was true. They didn't resolve the trial by combat situation in this episode, but uh, they did end it in such a badass way that I was okay with it. Um, go ahead. And to speak, you know, <sighs> There's zero percent this is a spoiler. So to speak to <laughs> the way in which I sometimes approach the season in terms of mapping out how arcs are going to go, the episode next week is called The Viper in the Mountain. And so I knew that that was coming next week, right? Yeah. So, you know, so then as as watching this, you're like, okay, so what are they going to do between now and episode eight that that's when that's happening? that makes any sense i don't know it's it's it can be fun to try to anticipate the way they are going to arc and map this show got it that being said i think we can both say regardless of whether we knew the title next week's episode we'll be pretty disappointed if the trial by combat doesn't happen next week i'm going to just put that out there all right so uh i think we can reasonably expect that in any case we are introduced to the mountain uh Gregor Clegane, I believe this is Clegane. I believe this is a given name, right? You don't want to. You don't want to attempt the uh, actor's name that I put in the show notes. No, I'm good. <laughs> I'm good. Now we have seen the mountain on the show before, have we not? I believe in season one. Uh, we've seen tw- him tw- like played by two other actors previously. Right, and when has he been in? Like there was that the jousting scene, I believe, right? Right. And what was the other instance where he was um, an actor? Do you recall? He was at court at some oh. at some point, and he was played by a really tall, gangly dude. 
and everyone was like, what is going on with the mountain? I mean, I think this physical, this physically is the best mountain we've gotten. Um, <laughs> <laughs> like, right? The man is a mountain. And when he stands next to Lena Headey, it's like, what? Um, but yeah, it is interesting that that character has been cast, recast twice now. So. Uh, and he's opened in like he's introduced again in the most spectacular Game of Thrones fashion possible. I, I gotta say, I thought that scene was awesome. Just gonna yeah. put that out there. That oh God, the evisceration! He the guts just killed just dumping the, with, on the ground. Yeah, he killed people in the most spectacular way possible. Yep. Uh, and, and in the most like painful way possible, and it just is like, well, that's what Game of Thrones does best. Uh, so that's great. Uh, I was a little bit disappointed that Jamie said he's completely useless when it comes to his left hand. I thought that was actually going somewhere, like that he would be training and eventually – like I was hoping Jamie would become as good with the sword in his left hand that is, as it was in his right hand. Maybe he still will, but I was kind of – Well, I think that was the point of those scenes was to – so that we could not even doubt his, the veracity of his statement, that, that we would really believe where Jamie is coming from, which is that I – if I could help you, it would still be a conflict of interest for me, but I can't. That's not even an option right, for me. Right, right, right. So, yeah. Yeah. So, anyway, spectacular uh, intro to Yeah. And just really well shot. I mean, uh, we'll, we'll get to the scene that I think is maybe the most beautifully shot scene of the entire freaking series. But I just – I really loved a lot of the camera work and, and just composition in this episode. So. Yeah. I mean, it's shot in such a way as to make him look – you know, a lot of low-angle stuff, a lot of uh, ways of comparing his size to other people. It's shot in the most spectacular way possible to, to make him seem like he is the largest creature in Westeros. Right. Um, so, yeah, really nicely done. But I'm not sure – let me look this up real quickly. But I'm not sure how much help he needs because, right, this guy actually won like a strongman competition – Right. He's six feet, nine inches tall. That's pretty amazing. So it's not like they needed a lot of up angles to make him look huge. Okay. Yeah. I mean, they didn't need – well, they just shot it at the default camera height and, right, right. and they had to make it an, up, uh, an upward angle. So That's right. That's right. Yeah. If you, if you uh, search on the internet for his name, there is a photograph of him holding what appears to be a thousand pounds worth of weights. Oh so that is amazing. I'm going to just – Paste this for you, John Robinson, so you can see this. But uh, yeah, he is—he is a, a formidable, formidable foe. He's a, a mountain of a man. Yeah, there you go. All right, so uh, let's move on to the next scene. We have a scene with uh, the Hound and Arya, and uh, a dying man. And so, like, I guess we've progressively seen more and more how, uh, like, the sort of impact that. Uh, I want to say wildlings have had on uh, helpless, innocent people in the countryside. Is that what's going on oh, here? Oh, I don't – I didn't know that he was supposed to have been injured by a wildling. Okay. I didn't know – like that's what I assumed. But what do you okay. – like what do you think – um, was I it th- ever established? Like what happened to him? Um, I don't know. Well, he said – you know, I think there was even the question like who did this to you? And he's like – that's a question I've stopped asking myself. I don't know. There's a lot of like fun existential statement, statements in this. But um, my perception, flavored by whatever I know, is that 
you know, like the countryside is an unsafe place to be because the kingdom itself is out of whack. Meaning you've got a boy king on the throne in King's Landing. You've got Roose Bolton and, and all of his men, you know, running the north as opposed to you used to have the Starks. Right. You've got Bale and Greyjoy over here. You've got Stannis over here. Like the kingdom, despite the fact that you know, allegedly the kingdom is united, like it's still a very dangerous place to be. And so that's what we see. It's not just the wildlings way up in the north. It's like all over the countryside. So I think what they're reinforcing is that people who don't, who can't like fight for themselves are basically screwed, right? Yeah. We've seen that multiple times. Yeah. Uh, And there's this amazing scene between the Hound Arya and the Diamond, which like, Honestly, got me reflecting on my mortality. This scene, like just the dialogue between them, and how he's afraid of nothingness, right? Like he'd rather cling on to life than uh, than let go, even though he's in great pain and basically can't live for anything anymore. He'd he'd rather hang on than die because we don't know what happens after death. Like he doesn't right. know what it is. Maybe it, you know nothing is worse than what's here now. So I just thought this was a beautiful scene. Um, what did you think of it? I completely agree, and I want to give a shout-out to our listener, um, at Maddie Gray, who um, tweeted at both of us today about sort of the Samuel Beckett, um, the playwright Samuel Beckett and his influence on this and how the actor uh, who played the Dying Man, his name is Barry McGovern, and he, apparently he's very well known for doing Beckett plays. Right. So it was an intentional casting, an intentional sort of flavor of of that sort type of drama in this scene, which I really enjoyed. Yeah, so. I mean, you give this uh, five-minute scene to an amazing actor, and he's going right. to make something great out of it. So they did a fantastic job. Yeah. Um, and this scene also has what I think is one of the most chilling moments thus far in the entire Game of Thrones series, which is there is a scene when the Hound shoves a blade into the man's heart. And the way it's shot, you see Arya in the background. Like, mm-hmm. you see her behind the blade. Yeah. And there is zero reaction from her just not even she's not even surprised she didn't it's not even that she's reacting to someone getting killed it's that she's not even shocked that it's going on you know like just that like when someone you know raises a glass at a bar too quickly i'll like flinch right she just didn't even (laughs) she's not even flinching at the hound and doing crazy stuff anymore killing people left and right she is so inured to violence that it has zero impact on her uh on a physiological level and And i uh, I think that's partially true but i also think that that was the natural conclusion of that conversation like she wasn't going to be surprised because that's sort of what the hound was like isn't it enough now like haven't you had enough like you know he's like i'm gonna dr kevorkian you right now and it's going to be better right you know well okay that being said i don't know that aria came to the same conclusion like i i don't you know i don't think that was necessarily communicated but it's a good point that you make which is that yeah i mean as a viewer we saw that coming of course so right yeah but i think your point your overall point definitely stands especially with how the scene ultimately concludes which is that she's getting darker and darker and i wanted to ask you how you feel this calls back to your earlier interpretation of we were meant to feel triumphant for aria um the last time we saw her stab someone uh, I well, I think this scene is far less triumphant 
Uh, <laughs> but like, you mean, uh, well, you mean that opinion that I held that literally no one else held? <laughs> I don't. I don't know. I feel like I don't want to defend a viewpoint that no no one in, in, like listening agrees with. But uh, at the same time, yeah, I do think the way this is this scene plays out is far different and darker. I would say, like, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, he teaches her like that's where the heart is, and then she uses that information, uh, and she uses the fact that like you, you know the way this scene was staged, I thought was a, a bit odd because. You have these two guys attacking the hound, right? right. Uh, and who are they, Joanna? That's Rorge and Biter. And we met them. They were in the cage with Jack and Hagar, um, the faceless man that Arya, like, saved. And, uh, yeah, Rorge is the one who said he would, like, I don't know, rape her till she died or raped her bloody or raped her with her sword or some very unsavory thing that he said that she called back. So... But it just was really weird. It was, it, it, you know, these people, they attack him and then they break off and they have this, it's almost like a supervillain monologue in a Bond film. It's like, why would you be telling him all this information? Right? Yeah, it was like, weird well, that he's like, oh, by the way, the king's dead. Not like, or this is why I'm attacking him because there's a price in your head. Yeah, why not just. Extra exposition. In right. There. Why not just like keep attacking him until one of you is dead? Right. right. Like that, that didn't really make much sense to me. That's uh, a fair point. But, uh, okay, so apparently the guy's called the biter, so he bites things, right? That was his whole... And also, like, why would you send the biter after the hound and not, like, stab him in the back of the head, as we discussed a few weeks ago, you know? Uh, whatever. In any case, all right, no one's... Like, because the scene felt so stagey to me and so stilted in some ways, um, when Arya ends up killing the guy by stag- stabbing him through the chest, the impact of that was a little bit blunted because... Mm. Uh, you want it to be a situation where genuinely the guy doesn't see it coming, not like some weird situation where the, for, for some reason they're talking to each other and then she just, like, why isn't he just attacking them endlessly right now, you know, uh, until... Yeah, but know. I don't know. I think it kind of worked on the tail end of that, you know, the Beckett thing that we just saw. It, it, it worked to me that it was stagey and kind of surreal almost. That whole thing was kind of surreal, so... Yeah, I, I mean, know. ultimately the moment when she stabs a guy and kills him... Uh, it worked for me as a mo- as very chilling, you know. It right. was very uh, dark, like this. And I like how uh, whenever there's killing, like the hound always has this one liner afterwards. <laughs> typically, right? Uh, I'm a. It kind of takes the edge off the darkness. Yeah. So I do. I do enjoy that because that is true to the character, right? That's like you can totally as a guy who's killed hundreds of times. Like that's totally what someone would say in that situation. Uh, so I like the fact that he said something along the lines of, um, you know, you're getting better at this or you're learning or something like that. Uh, it, it just is um, – it's a nice dynamic that I'm appreciative of. Uh, and I, like, I also liked the bringing up of when, when, when they asked Arya – when the dying man asked Arya, is this your father or are you her father or whatever. This idea of like a dark father or like a corrupting influence or, or some sort of like – whether or not it's a corrupting or like a survival – you know, training, it's not just Arya, it's like Sansa and Littlefinger. You know, like this is a thing we're going to see over and over again is like, how are the Starks doing without their parents and who is who is teaching them how to be adults in this world? Right. Uh, so, well, that notion is extended in the later scene in this episode when uh, they, you know, Arya and the Hound have this nice moment where the Hound is trying to patch himself up and Arya is saying, you need to use fire and he's like, no fire. And the, har- the hound kind of admits to the futility of his own situation, 
right? Like he kind of admits that he, he kind of says what I think a lot of show watchers are thinking, which is that, hey, uh, this whole thing doesn't seem like it's worth it, right? To be traversing across all this land with this girl in the hopes of some ransom that may never materialize, which has less chance of materializing after this week, uh, and killing lots of dudes with a price on your head. You know, like, there's a, it's kind of like, I don't know. I kind of get the feeling that uh, it's the Hound is finally realizing, like, his life is kind of pointless at this, this stage of the game. Mm. Uh did you get that feeling at all, or? Um, I I will say that that scene, that second scene with Arya and the Hound, is my favorite acting from Roy McCann. I thought it was so good. That story that he tells about his brother and his father, and once again, the way it was shot, you know, like it, camera on him, and then he turns and faces the camera, talking to Arya, saying, "You think you're alone." You know, oh my God. You know, and the Hound, we think about like who he was when we met him. And it's just another one of those unlikely arcs we have on the show where we end up really caring about someone um, who even still is kind of monstrous and started yeah. out very monstrous. I mean, we just saw him rob like innocent people one or two weeks ago, right? Who right. helped them out. Right. Uh, probably, could- probably one of the least sympathetic character um, maybe uh, not one of the least maybe um, a, a very unsympathetic character right? right there's more unsympathetic characters than him but uh, he's killed a lot of people ruthlessly without any emotion but at the same time a lot of the time we have seen him he is protecting Stark children right like that is also worth noting and so I do have that built in sympathy because he has kept Sansa and Arya alive through a lot of the series uh, but I agree. That was a very t- it was a very intense moment when he's talking about uh, the fire and how he absolutely hates it, and and a very touching moment when you you kind of get a glimpse as to how he became the Hound. Basically, this right. episode, right? It's his origin story. Right. <laughs> we I guess we get Tyrion's origin origin story later too. And I mean, the thing that I want to say about that running the risk of sounding like a book purist, you know, like it's those kind of backstories of the characters, like this, him telling this story, you know, which is from the book or the later, what we hear from Tyrion, which is from the book, which I really appreciate when they take the time and do, and they don't always have the time to do it. And I appreciate that. And I'm not saying, Oh, you know, I, I hate, you know, when they don't do it, I'm just saying when they do, it's usually very powerful. So, so is in the universe of the show, his brother is Gregor Clegane. Is that right? right. Uh, so that that's interesting. I wonder if that. I guess I'm curious if <laughs> if the new Gregor Clegane is going to be on the show long enough for us to see them interact again. Uh, my money is on no, uh, based on who took up Tyrion's cause this week. But we'll see. All right, and there's a scene with uh, Jon Snow at Castle Black mm-hmm. this this episode uh, where he's advocating flooding the tunnel, and there's this conversation where there's this tense conversation where. Alistair Thorne asks the the engineer guy, like, should we do this? And there's a huge long pause. And I was actually kind of curious as to what would happen. Uh, and he, Jon Snow is rebuffed. What and, was your interpretation of what the builder was like, what the builder was thinking when he was deliberating? I, I mean, I think it's just my, it was very conventional what my interpretation was, which is just he thinks Jon Snow is right. Because right. Jon Snow is right. Because Jon right. Snow makes sense in the context right. of the show. 
And, you know, General Robinson, um, I'm going to be as unspecific as possible here, but I will say that sometimes uh, we see time and time again, like we read on the news sometimes, like in certain institutions, whether they be corporate environments, whether they be, you know, uh, like the, the military or so on and so forth, that people make suboptimal decisions uh, because of non-rational factors. And uh, I did get that vibe here that, hey, everyone knows what the right thing is, but they can't do it because of this institution that they are, they're in and because of people's mercurial emotions, which is to say specifically Alice Thorne's let's say jealousy, let's say indignancy, like whatever you want to call it, but his obstinacy, like, uh, and so that was a little bit sad. That was yeah. a little bit wire-esque. Yeah. <laughs> this, like, yeah. So why? Did you have another interpretation or? No, no. I was just curious. Yeah. Uh, flooding the tunnel. That's pretty interesting. But yeah, I mean, the tunnel has always seemed to me, Joanna Robinson, to be a pretty, uh, <laughs> Substantial weak point. If people got access to that, that would kind of negate the whole purpose of the wall. So, uh, I don't think they've done a good enough job on the show showing how strong that gate is supposed to be. Interesting. Would be my one complaint. Right. But, uh, but I can't disagree with you based on, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I mean well, that being said, if, you know, like, I guess if they did, then the conflict in this episode between Jon Snow and Alistair would be, um, more would be more ambiguous like we wouldn't just know that Jon Snow is right right you know what I mean yeah yeah uh all right what else happens so that that's all we get of Castle Black is just Jon Snow continuing to be frustrated Jon Snow getting put in his place uh but I do think he's really coming to his own as a sympathetic character this season yeah yeah absolutely and Alistair Thorne being almost comedically villainous like Telling him to lock up his dog. How dare yeah. you, sir? How yeah. dare you? Seriously. <laughs> or or threatening that they would cook the dog, I think. I know. Really, you the don't pale. cook it, Direwolf. We, we haven't seen a direwolf in so long. Don't cook him. Yeah. There is a scene between Tyrion and Braun this episode that I thought was so lovely because you're thinking to yourself, oh, well, if Jamie won't fight, then at least Braun will. But what transpires in the scene is that like the Bron admits that I guess he and Cersei have had a conversation off screen. Did right. I interpret that correctly? Yeah. And uh, that she's kind of uh, Cersei's offered him a bunch of stuff and, and like a lot of benefits, essentially. Like <laughs> offered to uh, wed her to Lady Lawless, and like for her older sister to somehow die accidentally, and thus allowing Bronn to inherit a castle or something like that. But Bronn needs to be alive to inherit a castle. So basically, um, gave Bronn too much to live for in order to, uh, in order to fight for Tyrion. Yeah. What did you think of this scene? I really loved it. I loved it a lot. Um, show Bronn has always been more uh, sympathetic. I love the portrayal by that actor. And so I think it, they needed to have this scene um, in, you know... <laughs> I'll have to constantly be saying in the books, but in the books, he like he rebuffs Tyrion a bit more brusquely, uh, under the same circumstances, but a bit more roughly because their their relationship was always much more of a monetary one than than the more rich relationship we've seen in the show. Um, 
And he does it before the trial, which is why Braun can't testify for Tyrion, why Tyrion has no one to help him. He sends Pod away. Braun refuses to help him. That's why he's alone. You know, so it makes a little bit more sense. And what doesn't make sense to me in the context of the show is why Tyrion didn't ask Braun about Shay when mm. Braun is the last person to say, I saw her get on the boat. She's fine. She's right. gone. Right, that so is a good point. That's a show question mark for me. But all that aside, great scene, great performances, very emotional. All the three scenes we saw in in Tyrion's jail cell were just really, really enjoyable scenes to me. What was interesting to me was that, like Tyrion, given all this, like Tyrion still kind of expected Bronn to risk his life, which right. I would think that Tyrion was smart enough to realize that that was kind of. That is a fool's errand to get Braun to risk his life, in, given their relationship, no matter how good it is. And Braun, and as that thought was going through my head, Braun calls it out explicitly and says, like, when have you ever risked your life for me? Which I love that line so much. And it's true. I mean, well, I mean, theoretically, Tyrion risks his life for the city, but yes, I mean, he would never directly risk his life for Braun, or hasn't had the chance to before, and... I mean, I mean do, do we think he would? Wouldn't. Yeah, right? Like, I he bet probably he would. It depends on the context. He wouldn't go fight the mountain for Bronn, that's for sure. Right, so. exactly. So, yeah. uh, so it was weird to me that Tyrion didn't grok that beforehand uh, and needed Bronn to explain it to him, but I'm glad that it got called out and that there's this moment of realization that, like, hey, underpinning all the good times we've had is this financial relationship that we've yeah. had, right? Uh, that nothing in Game of Thrones is ever wholesome, even if it seems that way sometimes. Right. All right, John Robinson. Uh, so, you might, in the course of human events, uh, need a Kickstarter video. You might need a wedding video. You might need a video for any kind of purpose. To kickstart my wedding. <laughs> that is not a bad idea, actually. <laughs> I'm wondering, why don't people do that more often? I guess it's because of deeply ingrained societal practices. But, I guess. Uh, but who needs those? Anyway, should you need any of those things, I would recommend uh, NateMakesFilms.com. That's NateMakesFilms.com. That's the name NateMakesFilms.com. Nathan is, by day, a CG animator, and he's worked on a lot of summer movies like Man of Steel and Godzilla. But he was also very excited to animate some big battle sequences on Game of Thrones. So this is a guy who not only actually works on Game of Thrones and, and sort of helps to bring to life the crazy iconic scenes that we've all seen and maybe will see, uh, but he's also a huge contributor to our Kickstarter for Cast of Kings this, uh, this year. And he does some video work, which is what he wants to promote in this week's episode. It's mostly wedding work, but he also does corporate promotional and Kickstarter videos. NateMakesFilms.com is based in Vancouver, Canada, but since the Cast of Kings is an international show, we're so international, John Robinson. <laughs> it is true, though. We have, like, we've gotten emails from pretty far places, right? And like, I think it shines through when we get down to like pronouncing our Kickstarter backer names. Right. There's, like, all this, there's this like, Scandinavian contingent. Yeah, there's Sc- Scandinavia, there's like, Ita- Italy, you know, Prague. Like, there's a bunch of uh, people around the world that listen to the show, which is awesome. But um, NateMakesFilms.com is willing to travel for the right project if you need someone to help bring your project to life or capture a big wedding day then let nate makes help 
Um, so anyway, check out NateMakesFilms.com. His Twitter is at NateMakesFilms. Uh, and I just want to say, I went to NateMakesFilms.com and I watched one of his wedding videos. And it was very beautiful. So uh, if you're getting married, if you're doing a Kickstarter video, if you have some big event coming up, you need a good video for it. And um, you live near Vancouver, Canada, or are willing to pay for someone to travel, would recommend you check out NateMakesFilms.com. We also have people who contributed $10 to a cast of kings uh, for the privilege of being read aloud on this segment. Joanna Robinson, uh, which, who's going first today? That would be you. Fernando Borrego, Adrian Seal, Eva San, Eamon Abera, Carol Thomas, Darren Davis, Roger Sutton, Enda O'Connell, Jack Daniels, Lisa Hawthorne, John Simpson, and John Chesson. Thank you guys so much for your contributions. And I want to thank Brian Pari, Jesse from Honolulu, Joe Thompson, Roger Deng, Michael Vecchio, I guess the entire city of Petaluma, California, which is right by where I live. So thank you all of Petaluma, California, I guess. Colin Fisher, um, Mark Shutt, um, Nathan Welchert, Sam Boyd, Bastian Blank, and Christopher Hockenberg. Thank well, you guys I, so much. I think that's one of our best weeks in terms of pronunciation. I think there, is there were some helpful guides this very week. Very help, helpful pronunciation guides, unlike yes. most other weeks. Oh, come on. I'm just joking. <laughs> uh, thank you guys so much for your contributions at the rate of $10 each. Really appreciate it, and your contributions will keep ca- uh, A Cast of Kings going on long into the future. How, how many years is this show supposed to go on, John Robinson? I think another three, three. more? Three, three more seasons? Three more years of listening to us butcher your names, guys. If they get through it, it like if HBO actually finishes the series, which, by the way, will be like a pretty dramatic accomplishment, don't you think? I mean, people, I think, you know, people might think, oh, well, of course, it's a... It's like uh, goes without saying that they would finish off the show, but I mean, even just listening to Brian Cogman talk last week, uh, this show being successful and lasting to the end of the book series was never a slam dunk, right? Uh, like this first season, you know, it, it it sounded like it was held together by like string and tape, basically. <laughs> Really and, nice string and tape, though. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, and now, like, they're real. I feel like this season, they are really, between season three and four, they're really hitting their stride. Like, yeah. these are storytellers in control, like, in complete control of what they're doing. And, like, they now that they've, like, done a trial, a bunch of trial and error, right? They've tried a bunch of different ways of telling the story, and now they know what works best, and they're really delivering on it. So, yeah, I agree with that. And I know some people who think this is the worst season. So, interesting. Yeah. I think this is the second best season after season three. Um, well, actually, and we're not even done yet. Yeah, actually, well, uh, season one, I don't know, man. Season one was also pretty freaking spectacular. Season two is the one that I really just don't like at all. Like, that's the one season I'm probably never going to revisit. And it was the season that uh, started this podcast, so <laughs> good times. All right, uh, so what else happens in this episode? There's a scene between Danny and Dario... Uh, and yeah, so you want to talk us through this epi- this uh, scene, John Robinson? <laughs> um, are you referring to the fact that in the show notes I wrote "bare ass" with an exclamation mark? Correct. I um, I you know I just think it was a feeble or a decent, semi decent, semi feeble attempt to balance the nudity on the show. Um, 
of course, we it was followed by Melisandre being super duper naked for an entire scene. But um, yeah, I, it was aesthetically pleasing scene, <laughs> was it not? <laughs> yes, I thought it was, it was very aesthetically pleasing. I mean, yeah, I mean, it was pretty hot, right? Was it hot? I thought it was pretty hot. Like just the way she's sort of relaxing and like commanding him to do stuff for her if you want to rewatch that scene <laughs> which i just did recently um <laughs> <laughs> for research guys um you might want to watch amelia clark just basically stare at his penis for the last 15 seconds of the scene she's just like she's not just staring. she's not like going up and down his body and like just taking it all in she is staring directly um so yeah, uh, yeah. Right. I mean, the actress didn't actually. I don't think his penis is actually exposed in reality. I wasn't saying his penis is actually exposed. <laughs> I'm saying whatever. So you're she was staring at it. Can you use the actress's name? So it I'm was sorry. Just... <laughs> Danny Daenerys Targaryen was staring at Daria Naharis's uh, penis. No, whatever they do when you have to act against a CGI thing like a floating tennis ball, whatever they put the tennis ball right where his penis would be, and they were like, "Stare there. That's where it would be." Yeah, is that what you're saying? Anyway. Well, they usually have some kind of sock, I believe. I know, I know. Yeah. Anyway, <laughs> let's reflect more on this. We could, we could, but Dar- I mean, like that. You know, we also saw. Did we not like the tip of a prosthetic penis or something like that? I think they're trying. They're getting there slowly. You know. Are you one- wait? Are you implying that there hasn't been enough male nudity on the show, Jenna Robinson? I'm just saying they're getting there. <laughs> I think we need. I think we need to send in some proof of all the male nudity that's been on the show before. I think I have those emails saved. Thank you very much. <laughs> Seriously, though, don't do that. Okay. Okay. In all seriousness, though, um, do we feel like this uh, romance is a plausible one? I would say yes. I think that there is. The show has given you enough that, like, I think this is a good, uh, shall we say, payoff for all that's come before. And I sort of like that, you know, it's just Danny in full, as you say, in full possession of her power. She's like, yeah, I want sex, so we're going to have sex right now. And I'm the queen, so we're going to do it, um, which is pretty great. So There's a scene where Jorah comes in the next uh, morning, has a talk with Danny, and uh, it's First has to have, like, awkward hallway talk with Dario, which is really sad. I mean, do you think Dario knows about Jorah's feelings for Danny? I think everyone knows about Jorah's feelings for Danny. And he's just, in that case, he's just rubbing it in then. He's just a dick, yeah. Yeah, but I guess uh, that's who, you know, I guess some women are into that kind of thing. I guess so. So, anyway, so he goes and she's kind of saying, okay, I'm going to send him back to Yunkai and retake it by force. And she has that spectacular line where she he, she says like she he can you know they can live in my world or die in their old one right yeah uh, and again we get we come we bump up against this theme of like Danny is rash impetuous doesn't think through the consequences of her actions and you find that being tempered by Jorah in this episode and successfully tempered by Jorah in this episode uh, and. <laughs> I did like at the end she threw him a bone. She's like you can tell, I mean not you know, not metaphorically. I mean she, she the idiom I'm referring to. Uh she threw him a bone and said like you can tell Dario that you were the one that convinced me. And I think that was her way of saying you know, Dario can have my body but you still have my mind. That's kind of how I interpreted it. What did you think of that? Or or at least her ear. Um <laughs> Yeah, yeah. No, I, I really liked that scene a lot. I loved uh, bringing up Ned Stark. I love it when they bring up Ned Stark or other 
long dead characters. Uh, it's just a nice reminder um, of Jorah's connection to Westeros and all of that. Um, yeah, and this idea of the quality of mercy, which apparently Danny needs to learn, and she just sees the world in very black and white. And what we do admire about her, about her is that we can sympathize with her cause, obviously, because she's trying to end slavery. But um, I well, think and also and also because we've saw like how she was she was set on a path, yeah, that was not her own choice. Right, right. And so she identifies very strongly, of course. Yes, Uh, we see all of that. But yeah, as you say, we sort of see that she doesn't think about the chessboard. Like if we're talking about the Game of Thrones, she doesn't see it several moves ahead. She just sees what she needs to do right here and now. So So, uh, this is followed up by a scene where – well, actually, I guess like right after we saw – I actually distinctly remember the cut. We saw – it went yeah. right from uh, Dario's ass to mm-hmm. Melisandre's breasts. Which really. really, I feel like, was a show of being like, fine, you want equality? We gave you equality, which they didn't. But they're, like I said, they're getting closer. Wait, you want a what? Equality. Oh, equality. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah uh, what do you mean it wasn't equality? Like we needed full frontal from both is what you're saying? I'm not saying that. I'm just saying you can't like – it wasn't equal. Yeah. We saw a flash of their ass and then we saw a lady naked for an entire scene. I didn't mind seeing a lady naked for an entire scene, but it's not quite equality. Right? And I'm sure the scene was ripped straight from the books, right, Joanna Robinson? Oh, yeah, of course. No, no seriously, was it? No. no. Was, it, was, it complete, was it completely fabricated or was just the uh, nudity fabricated? No, it was completely fabricated. And I actually kind of really loved it because it said something explicitly the book has never said, which is that Melisandre is kind of a charlatan, that she has all these potions and powders. Like we knew that she had potions and powders, but for her to say like, well, here's what I do, right? I'm a snake oil salesman basically, but I believe in the inherent thing. But I use these flash powders and all these spectacular things to get people to see the truth. Right. But um, all of her, you know. I, you know. But to quote Star Trek V, Jonah Robinson, <laughs> why does God need a starship? And by by that I mean, if uh, we've seen that her one true God has been able to perform wonders, like why would if he's really that powerful, like why would she, you know he need all this uh, crazy window dressing? I guess the reason because is, she can't be giving birth to a smoke baby every single time right. I guess uh, the idea is that there's limits. The there's yeah. limits to his powers, right? Like right. she can't just use them, or they can only be useful in specific instances. She can't just use them left and right, right? Right. So, uh, so yeah, that, that is an interesting point that was established. And, and here's a question akin to, you know, if a tree falls in the woods, does it make a sound? If uh, a woman is nude for an entire scene of dialogue needlessly, is it really sex position? <laughs> well, I actually wouldn't call it sex position. I think it was actually quite useful in the scene, um, especially because, like, the most, like, sort of – leering camera angle we got was from Salisa's point of view, right? Salisa sort of ogling Melisandre's ass. And I think that that was sort of, I, I thought it really actually, it also heightened like Melisandre, you know, I'm not, I don't usually defend nudity on the show, but I think it really heightened Melisandre's confidence and power, fully in possession of who she is, walking around naked and Salise, who is not nearly as beautiful, sort of feeling very insecure and terrible about herself. And I just think, I think the juxtaposition, you know, in addition to filling a TNA quota, I think it did actually serve a pur- purpose as opposed to some of the more flagrant sex position we've seen. It's before. true. And there's, I think towards the end of that scene, there's also this kind of 
justification. Uh, am I just inventing this? That like I don't know if I thought this or if I read it or if it actually happened in the show. But there's this kind of where she kind of um, comes to this understanding that like oh I guess if Stannis had to have sex with you, like it was all in in the fire god's will type of thing. Right. Yeah. Well, I think yeah. She. I think. Melisandre has probably had variations of this conversation with Celise before, where she's like, "I'm gonna have sex with your husband, but it's what it's what the Lord of Light wants." Right, and so it's all and having her naked while saying that actually like intensifies the drama in that. Right. Yeah, and that was because a you see you see kind like, of what is at yeah. stake. Yeah, also, yeah, yeah. No, no, I agree with you absolutely. Yeah. And then this this question of Shireen, which is the end of the scene, because. Um, they're going somewhere, and Celise doesn't want to bring Shireen, and Melisandre says, no, we have to. Right. Shireen so. being Stannis' daughter, right? Right. Right. Uh, who uh, Celise does not treat very well, I think we've seen in previous episodes, right? Like they don't Right. Get she lives in like a, you know, a garret. It's very sad. They don't get along too well. Well, not just to get along. Like, I think Celise thinks she's cursed because of the grayscale in her face. Right. But then also, yeah, she attributes all these qualities to her that we have not seen because we've just seen her be adorable with Stannis and with Davos. So, uh, We saw the return of one of the most beloved characters in the history of Game of Thrones. <laughs> no, I'm not talking about Sir Pounce. I'm referring to Hot Pie, who comes back. And not only that, is uh, expounding on the nature of, uh, what is it? Kidney pie Kidney and gravy. Pie. That's right, with gravy. Uh, yeah. In a pretty, fairly amusing scene with him and Brienne and, and Pod. And That's again, great. always cool when this show goes out of the way to create this sprawling world and then have two sort of uh, strands that you never thought would connect, connect. And right. uh, it was a pleasure to watch. I The one thing that bothered me about the scene was not, like I thought everything was really well done, but... It bothered me because Podrick said, hey, I don't think we should be going around saying we're looking for Sansa. And then, you know, uh, Hot Pie comes out and says, hey, here's some information that you didn't know that is very useful, which is that Arya is still alive. And that uh, they're, and then that leads them to the conclusion that they're probably at the Eyrie. Um, but Podrick's advice was actually good, man. Don't you think? I do. I do. And, and Brienne gives him this like smug, triumphant look. And I'm like, dude. Not just a look she was like you were saying. Yeah. And it's I, like, dude, yeah. come on, man. Podrick was right. He was right. I'm, I'm, I'm sad that uh, Brienne got positive reinforcement for her bad behavior. Sometimes that happens in the world, man. It, um, and I thought it was interesting because earlier with the dying man, Arya says her real name too. Yeah. She's like, I'm Arya, I'm Arya Stark. And uh, – which is, I don't know, it's interesting. Because I think in general they're trying to be incognito, you know? And so it's interesting that that came up twice. Yeah. Um, I'm still working out thematic. Well, I mean, I think like that, in that case she had a feeling that guy was going to die. And so she's like, what is there to lose, right? Well, tr- true, true. But just sort of owning your name might be kind of some sort of sub-theme in this. I don't know. So, so, so they have this conversation then about uh, like what they should do. Right, and there's this kind of like path in the woods, and they decide to go down like the darker path, right? The path that's like less illuminated. Mm-hmm. Uh, I didn't know. Like, I, I think what we're supposed to take from that is they're going to the Erie, correct? 
Right. Like, I mean, I asked the person I was watching the show with if that's what would happen because <laughs> they had this question that ended with "I don't know," and then they just took a path. But there wasn't a helpful road marker that was like this way to the Erie, this way to wherever. Well, they're very vague in talking about what they're going to do. Yeah. So, yeah. so I don't know if it's clear. Uh, okay. Um, but what I was going to say is, you said that you know the path forked. So that you and you asked me this question on the podcast, I think last season maybe, and I answered incorrectly. So I want to answer correctly this time, which is that this is the same inn we keep seeing over and over again. In the book, it's called the Inn at the Crossroads, and it's just a fun thing, like seeing hot pie pop back up, seeing people come and go in this one location. And so it's sort of great that they had them at a literal crossroads right after being at this place called the end of the crossroads. So, um, but you know, that's the place where Kat arrested Tyrion and it's just, it's all sorts of stuff. So I thought it was good. Very cool. So, uh, only a couple more scenes left or a couple more locations to talk about for this episode. One of them is, uh, let's just close off on the Tyrion and Oberyn thing. Oberyn comes in, has this intense brooding conversation with Tyrion. That's awesome. And then at the end, Picks up the torch and is like, I will be your champion. And I was like, that is so badass. And, I, and uh, like I said earlier, it totally, like, I was disappointed that we didn't get to see the trial by combat this season, uh, this episode, but so happy that they like paid it off in that way. Uh, what did you think of this scene? I don't want to overstate because I probably want to let it sit with me a little longer, but this might be my favorite scene in the entire history of Game of Thrones. Wow. Yeah. I, uh, you know, I do want to point out, I'm sorry, I, I just asked you a question, but I'm going to interrupt you and say that there is a similar shot in this scene to a scene in, a scene in season one. It's not quite as artistic in this episode, um, but if you recall when Ned was in jail awaiting his execution, um, there's this beautiful scene where like, you saw like Ned's face or eye illuminated by torchlight. And you see a very similar sort of, you know, it does, it's not shot the same way, but it's uh, Tyrion, like, just in the dark, and his face gets illuminated by torchlight. I, f- I almost felt like it was kind of a callback to that c- shot from season one. I think it definitely is supposed to be. Okay. Um, because they're in what's called the Black Cells. or I, They didn't make it explicit, but, you know, he and Ned are supposed to be held in kind of the same place. And... Um, we saw that eye again, I think, this season in one of Brand's visions, I want to say. We saw that shot of right, eye. Right, that's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. So. so tell us why this was your favorite scene of all time. Okay, so like, you know, from a TV watching point of view, this is one of the most beautiful scenes I've seen on television. As you mentioned before, and we talked about this in the Michelle McLaren episode, um, the torchlight in this scene was used perfectly. Right. Um, not just dramatically at the end, but to light it throughout. And they're like, the characters are, I'm sorry. I, I, no, I, go, I, ahead. I, I, go ahead. The characters are backlit. Yeah. So, uh, which is always like really dramatic looking and, and beautiful looking typically. And so, just the really tight close up on Tyrion's face as Oberyn is talking. Um, I love that they included this story about Cersei. Um, I think it's very important that it's in there. And uh, yeah, just this, you know, everyone says last week with the show your courtroom scene, everyone was like, oh, give Peter Dinklage the Emmy. Okay, but if I had to give Peter Dinklage the Emmy for something, it would be just purely his reaction shots in this scene, which is almost making me want to start crying right now. Um, it was very emotional for me watching it. Um, I've rewatched it a couple times. I am crying right now, only a little bit. But like, <laughs> I just, I think he was amazing. Um, really selling the pain that we have seen Tyrion pushed down. For seasons, um, which we saw sort of royal up last last week, we see a quieter version of it here. He often covers it with humor, 
and um, sarcasm. And here we just see how vulnerable he is, how alone. And then his face went over, you know, and Pedro Pascal was amazing because he was doing this with humor. Like he was telling this horrific story, but like with humor, with with a gentle delivery. And then at the end when he picks up the torch and his sort of very flamboyantly heroic moment, which is so over and in my opinion, um, I, yeah, I just thought it was amazing. She unveiled the free. Your head was a bit large, your arms and legs were a bit small, but no claw. No red eye, no tail between your legs, just a tiny pink cock. We didn't try to hide our disappointment. That's not a monster, I told Cersei. That's just a baby. And she said he killed my mother. And she pinched your little cock so hard I thought she might pull it off until your brother made her stop. It doesn't matter, she told us. Everyone says he will die soon. I hope they are right. He should not have lived this long. Well, sooner or later, Cersei always gets what she wants. What was it about the scene that uh, resonated with you so much, Joanna Robinson? I just think that, like, Tyrion feeling his entire life like he has been hated by the people who are supposed to defend him and to get this confirmation, you know, that from the, and then to get this sympathy from an unexpected source. When, when Pedro Pascal delivers a line of like, that's not a monster, that's just a baby, you know, and it was just like, oh my God, you know, this whole life from a baby before he did anything right. he was labeled as a monster. Yeah. And that's what he's had to deal with his whole entire life is being hated by the people who are supposed to shelter you. And, you know, something that I that I wrote about a little bit uh, over on Vanity Fair was this idea of siblings in this episode because we it's the same thing we get from Sandor talking about his brother burning his face. And so you hear about how Cersei like pinched his tiny baby penis when he was little and called him a monster and put him on display. Um, or you get this idea of – well, I mean, we'll get to to Catelyn and Lysa Tully, like this idea of siblings and and the amount of pain that can come from the people who are supposed to be closest to you. So, definitely, yeah, it was intense. Yeah, and uh, yeah, fantastic performance by both characters, by both actors in this scene. Uh, so powerful stuff, and we get, you know, we we find out what is going to happen with Oberyn being the champion, and I guess the the one other like. Plot point, I guess, worth mentioning, if not closing off on, is that there's been a lot of questions from viewers, from myself, uh, about like what is Oberyn's game? Like, he's clearly here to kind of take revenge in some way, and I guess this is the way he's going to do it, right? Like, I don't, th- I, I don't think it's possible that he planned for this at all. Right, like no, I think he's been waiting for his opportunity, right, and, and he, he sees his opportunity, and if you rewatch last week's episode and and Tyrion's like, "I demand a trial by combat, and Oberyn just sort of like leans forward this look on his face, like and jackpot, yeah, basically. um and in um in the books, he does this in that recess where we saw Jamie go and talk to Tywin instead. Oberyn, this scene kind of takes place in between. So when Tyrion says, I demand a trial by combat, he already has a champion in the bag, right? Um, and so that's a different thing. And so that's why I really liked that they got into, at the beginning of this episode, Tyrion's motivation. Because it did seem wildly self-destructive 
even if he was assuming Jamie would be his champion, it seemed wildly de- self-destructive to say, I demand a trial by combat. And it was wildly dis- self-destructive, but Tyrion's too smart for that. So it was wildly self-destructive with that really just searing point at getting back at Tywin. So. Right, right. So we come to it at last, the culminating huh? scene of the episode, or the culminating location of the episode, which is at the Eyrie. And uh, there is a scene between... So this is actually the one scene that I thought was pretty weak in this episode, which is full of cliches and characters behaving out of character. Uh, and that is a scene in the courtyard with Sansa Robin, uh, Sansa and Robin, Sansa building this castle. And they have this like really nice dialogue. And, you can, and, and for a second... Even though uh, Robin was talking about, oh, we can make people go by through the moon door and stuff. And even though he's talking about killing dudes, it was like still kind of touching because he's like, oh, well, it's because he wants to – he would only do that to make Sansa feel better, right? That's how this conversation started at least. Then it goes south really fast. Uh, Sansa for some reason is really re- – who knew she was a, 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 a sort of – uh, what do you want to say? How do you call it? A um, an artiste, you know, like a master, whatever the term is when it comes to uh, building snow castles. But she's really proud of her work, and for some reason, when Robin messes it up, she get, they get really upset at each other, and Sansa slaps him. And I just thought that was really out of character for Sansa, who has endured all sorts of humiliation and tragedy without ever lashing out physically, without ever lashing out verbally. And I guess you could make the argument that, oh, that's because she couldn't, otherwise she would die. And that now that she, you know, is in slightly less danger, she feels okay letting loose with her emotions a little bit more. But it just struck me as wildly out of character for her. And, okay, another argument you could make is maybe it was like building up to this, like, she had, had all this buildup, and she just snapped. Finally, she couldn't take it anymore, and she just snapped. But I don't think the show, like, the text of the show justifies that interpretation. So, I did not like that at all, and that's not even the only problem I have with this scene. But what did you make of this interaction, Joanna? Um, I had heard from some people that they thought the show really whiffed this scene, and I was surprised. But hearing your interpretation, I guess they did. Um, this is... Maybe one of Sansa's best chapters in the book um, because it's all about – she takes a very long time building this snow Winterfell. I see. Um, and the like, and I think what they were trying to convey when she comes out of the Eyrie and it's snowing, like this is the first she's seen snow in so long. She's finally home. She's back in the north. She's with her family. She's closer. She's safe. This is like – it's not just like her building a snow castle. And like I said, I'm not I'm not really judging your interpretation because I'm not sure that the show really delivered how important this was for Sansa. And she's got this great line in the book where she says, I'm stronger inside the walls of Winterfell. And it's just this very like potent thing for her. And he fucks it up and she impetuously slaps him. She's also younger in the book. So I think it's like children fighting, which makes more sense, right, than, you know, Sophie Turner who looks very mature. Um so, yeah, I, I I could see how the show did not really establish that the way they needed to. Yeah, I mean, I I would agree. I would say that they whiff the scene. I don't think yeah. it, it. But it I mean, does like, that make sense? Like in that context, how yeah, it, it potent does. of a symbol that could be for her. Certainly, certainly. Yeah. Um, but uh, I guess, like from my POV, we've just seen her go through so much 
and been forced to like she has developed literally the best poker face in this universe like in the universe of this world i would i would argue no right. one has no one in this show has been forced to endure more and show less in terms of emotion so this idea that she would be in the situation that she knows is not like in her like her best situation right she knows this is not like she can just let loose and be herself right because she's already seen lisa be crazy right to her. right that she'd be in, in in an almost equally dangerous situation uh and then just like impetuously slap this kid it just it uh, rang completely false to me i think what we're supposed to be seeing her from her here though is and we saw it last last week sort of in that seen before Lysa went super crazy is her letting these defenses down that she's been holding up for so long. And she's like finally feeling like I'm where I'm supposed to be. It's snowing here. This is where I belong. I'm close to Winterfell. Um, I'm with my family. Yeah, my aunt's crazy. But, you know, here's – oh, here's my cousin and uh, he's going to send people out the moon door for me. That's nice. Um, no one has offered to do anything like that for me in a long time. So, um, Yeah, yeah. Uh, again, I think that I get what they're trying to do. And you don't um, think they accomplished it. I don't think they accomplished yeah, it. But sure. people will probably disagree. I would bet money that people will disagree with me. So if you well, felt that, that it was effective, do write in at a cast of kings at gmail.com. But yeah, it did not work for me. And neither did the next scene in which... Well, just really, really quickly, yep. the last... Really so quickly. Um, people have, have bitched because they dye her hair to disguise her in the books. They dye her hair dark so she's unrecognizable. And people have bitched that they did not do that to Sansa on the show. But uh, rewatch that scene and look how pretty her red hair looks in the snow and just get over it because <laughs> she looks so pretty in that She does scene. look really amazing. Yeah. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, I was also bothered by the next scene where Baelish just makes out with Sansa, like, cementing how completely evil he is. Uh and yeah, okay, I guess we've seen like hints of Baelish. Uh, <sighs> Baelish strikes me as a very calculating person, right? And he doesn't strike me as the type that would do something that he knew would be seen by Lysa uh, in, like, in, out in the open like this. It just struck me as very out of character unless he wanted Lysa to see it. But that makes no sense because he's going to kill Lysa anyway. It's not like he's doing it so that she'll take some action. You know what I mean? Like it, it just it, it was almost comical to me how he like made out with her and then, oh, wow, Lysa's like right in the background in this menacing way. Shot really well. Like the way it's shot is beautiful and stuff. But from a plot perspective, from a character motivation perspective, I just didn't think it worked. What did you think? I think what I will say in defense of Baelish, who I agree with you, unlike like he's supposed to be the opposite of Danny in that he's seeing like 10 moves ahead, right, on the chessboard. Um, and in this scene and the one that follows, he's not. He's not acting in his usual calculated manner. And I think that has to do with his major weakness, which is Callan and Sansa, who reminds him of Callan. So, I mean, but I will say that the grossest pickup line in the history is like, in another life, I could have been your father. I'm going to kiss you now. (laughs) Super deeply gross. I see. So that's why my pickup lines have been working. (laughs) Because I've been using that tried and true gem. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah, that is... Really troubling. Well, and what he meant by that was, and actually, like, I, I actually was kind of uh, in that moment. You know, I had sympathy for him as well. This this episode was all about like, 
letting you sympathize with character, well, with the Hound specifically, but like, and also with Tyrion, who we already had sympathy for. But I, I you you see a glimpse as to why, um, why what made Baelish the way he is, right? That in another life, like, if love was really what was going to be triumphant, like nothing, you know, he might have actually been able to marry Cat. Now, what that means is that Sansa wouldn't even exist. Right, because they, you know, but you know what I mean. Like, it, it still really was touching because he's like, he's arguing for this alternate future that will never happen because of the the constraints of the universe they live in, and uh, I thought that was pretty tragic. Then he com- my, sorry, go ahead. Then he completely erased it all by making out with him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> one of my favorite emails that we got. I think we just got it couple hours ago is from Ian Fay, where he mentions that his theory as to why um, Aiden Gillen's accent is so erratic this season has to do with him maybe slipping back. This is the most charitable uh, interpretation I've heard. Uh, Baelish slipping back into maybe an older, uh, less polished accent because Baelish comes from more humble beginnings. And so he's back home in the Vale near where he grew up. So maybe he's, you know, it's like when people get drunk and they sound more Southern because their accent comes out or whatever. So um, I don't know this idea. Yeah. That of, of, Things going back generations and generations. These monsters didn't come out of nowhere. They were bred from the actions of other people. So, And Lysa, I don't remember how much Lysa talks about this in the next scene, but um, yeah, how her father, like how her upbringing shaped who she is so much. So, Oh, oh and by the way, I, I join you in thinking that that email was charitable. I think that uh, the his accent has just been really inconsistent throughout the whole show, but that's that's which is weird because Aidan Gillen is a great actor, but um, yeah, so I think that is charitable, but but it, it does happen in real life, so I don't know. We'll see. I have never really. I actually think he's much better here than he was in like The Wire because I just never bought his uh, American accent. So that's just me. <laughs> when he was like, "I'm Tommy Carcetti, the mayor of Baltimore," <laughs> <laughs> particularly in that scene, Jonah Robinson. <laughs> Particularly. Right. <laughs> uh, so that was really nice. Um, so then final scene. Uh, yep. Lysa Aaron threatens Santa. Baelish like pushes her out the moon door. That's basically it. Apparently a lot of book readers are getting up in arms about the fact that they changed the line from uh, uh, only cat to your sister. Right. Is that right? Which mm-hmm. as a show watcher, I can tell you like, no one gives a crap about that. Like, <laughs> I thought it was totally effective as, uh, you know, your sister. But what did you think, Joanna? Oh, my initial reaction was it was a needless line change just because it is like one of those iconic like – and we talked to Brian Cogman about how they changed from the Jamie Lannister sons as regards to the Lannister sons. It's like one of those just for a certain amount of book fandom – People kept saying only cat was their like code word for the fact that Lysa Aaron was going out the fucking moon door this season. And so they were ready to hear it. They didn't hear it. They were disappointed. My initial re- reaction was disappointment. Then I thought about it and thought about this sort of sibling theme and how they needed to drive home the, that point. So change it to on- your sister. But I think they could have done your sister and then only cat and we could have gotten all of it. Mm. Um, I don't know. Like I, I really don't need to be needlessly pedantic. Um you don't need to be needlessly pedantic. I don't mean to be needlessly oh. pedantic, but I guess I am. No, I mean, I think it's worth discussing because apparently that's what a lot of people are talking about. But um, 
It is the number one. It has been on the number one post on VanityFair.com all day for some odd reason. Like people really care about this, and I'm sorry that people are disappointed. Um, I just hope it doesn't overshadow what was really great about the episode. So yeah, I mean, I thought that uh, again from the perspective of a show watcher, it was totally fine. I think it, it had the desired effect. Uh, and the thing is, when when we to think about like that line reading from the the one that we talked with uh, Brian Cogman about, like the Lannister send the regards and why he made that change, he there was a rationale behind it, right? So, do we can we think of any rationale why they made this change other than the sibling thing that you mentioned, right? Well, a lot of people have said that they thought it would be confusing, right? If you for casual only- watch, if you said only cat, but they they were just talking about Catelyn. Um, and I guess Cat is not used as a nickname for her as much in the show as it is in the books. But I just I don't I don't think people are so stupid that they wouldn't have gotten what he meant. Like you knew what he meant when he said to her, "I've only ever loved one woman in my life." Like right. you know the answer to that already. Was, right. So if he says only Cat, you're not going to be like, "Oh, does he mean Sir Pounce? What is he talking about? I don't understand." <laughs> uh, like callback. Like what? Are, you know. Um, so uh, yeah. So for clar- for clarity's sake, it doesn't really change anything for me. I think the bigger concern that I think everyone should feel from a storytelling perspective is is the problem that you had a couple episodes ago when Lysa, between like kissing him, was like, let me tell you all about the time that I murdered my husband for you. You know, that exposition that was really clumsy. That's supposed to go right here when she's mad and upset and crying and saying, I did everything for you. Which actually uh-huh. was like I hearing you talk about that in the la- that episode. Yeah. I actually thought it would go much better in this episode. Of course it would. Yeah. So that's what I'm saying. Like I, I don't understand that change. Maybe that's another clarity sake. Like they didn't want that very important plot piece lost in the emotion and then shock, quote unquote, ever going out the moon door. Though I think even casual show watchers saw that coming. But like, um, <laughs> yeah. But it just makes sense. It makes more sense. And so, you know, when you're reading the chapter, you get all this Sansa Snowcastle stuff, which is actually like very emotional and important. And then you get the shocking revelation. I mean, I think that's why it's such like a big moment in the books. You get the shocking revelation that Littlefinger was behind the thing that started the war. And then boom, Lysa goes out the moon door. And it's just like, I don't know. It was um, better executed that way. But I think. Uh, was, here's a question Was Littlefinger's like game and i don't know if you can even answer this question but was littlefinger's game to start the war like was he intending to take out the starks i guess was that like always like was that his if his primary objective is to rise to the throne like was that one of the things he thought was necessary to get there and that's kind of one of the more i mean i'm not gonna answer directly but i would i think the most useful thing to think about when you think about littlefinger is the great gatsby (laughs) because Basically, and if Catelyn is his Daisy Buchanan, like, it's not, the idea is not just like, I want to be on the throne. It's I want to be on the throne or I want to be the power behind the throne or wherever you think Littlefinger's endgame is. I want the power and the money and the prestige because of this wound I have from when I was younger and this girl that I lost. And those go hand in hand. And I think it's impossible to separate his idea of attaining Catelyn or his Daisy from attaining whatever power and money uh, that he's after. That, that makes sense. I guess I'm just saying, like from a plot, from like a very basic storytelling perspective, he kills John Aaron, right? Or he he has uh, Lysa kill John Aaron, right? Right. Um, and then frames the Lannisters for it, right? And then is he anticipating that that's going to get Ned 
placed his hand of the king, who he's then going to betray, and then thus bringing down the entire line of Winterfell or the entire Stark family. Like I, I'm just trying to figure out like what his plan was. Do you know, what I I'm just saying? think he is the kind of uh, person. I mean, the whole chaos is a ladder thing is a speech. He's a kind of person who kicks off trouble. He's like the Joker. Basically. Well, not just like that. He wants to cause any kind of chaos. He causes chaos and then just constantly shifts his plan to see how he can gain from what's going on and where the pieces are moving. Fair enough. Uh, so it's going to be curious to see like how they're going to resolve this, John Robinson. Like. The fact that, like, what, how are they going to explain that uh, Lysa died? Are they going to just say, say she fell out the moon door? Like, that's gonna look, not going to look suspicious at all? I'm very, <laughs> I'm very curious. And I know you can't say anything. People who were talking earlier about us doing speculation, this is why. Because when I speculate, Joanna Robinson just sub- subjects me to awkward silence. <laughs> As well as she should. As if you just tried one of your tried and true, like, <laughs> I could have been your dad, and now I'm going to kiss you moves. Exactly. Awkward, awkward silence. Exactly yeah. right. That's right. Um, so we'll see how that's going to play out. Mm-hmm. Overall, I thought this was a fantastic episode. So Re- good. Really liked it. Um, yeah. I, like, I, I thought, wasn't expecting it to be a good episode, yeah, actually. Yeah, m- me neither, actually. Like, 10 minutes in, I was thinking, oh, they're not going to resolve the whole trial by combat thing. Like, none of it. It's going to be one of those, like, oh, they're just moving the pieces around episode. But by the end, I was a huge fan of it. So Because, yeah, because Baelish's sigil is a mockingbird, I was pretty sure that Lysa's going out the moon door by the end of the episode. But I was like, but everyone's going to see that coming. So that's not even that interesting. So what are they going to do all episode? And I was like, oh, just your favorite scene of the entire series, Joanna. It's fine. Um, nice. It was great. So very cool. Yeah. Uh, well, I think that's going to wrap us up for today. Anything else, Joanna Robinson? Or that is it. All right. Yeah. Thank you guys for listening to a Cast of Kings. Joanna Robinson, where can people find more of your work on the internet? Um, you can find me every day on VanityFair.com. I am doing this Game of Thrones spoiler podcast on. If you go to the Fighting in the War Room feed, it's under a storm of spoilers. Fighting in the War Room, a storm of spoilers. I get asked that question a lot on Twitter. And finally, you can find me on Twitter at Joe wrote this. Find me at Dave10.net and find the other podcasts I do at slash filmcast.com. Thank you guys for listening to A Cast of Kings. We will see you guys next week. 